Um, hello, welcome to church, wherever you are. Uh, welcome uh, to those of you here with us in person. Welcome to those of you joining us online today as well. Um, I get the opportunity, as Chrissy said in the video, to finish up our Stories You Thought You Knew series. So uh, in just a moment, as we've done the past couple of weeks, we're going to spend some time looking at a familiar Bible story. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to let you know that uh, my dad, Pastor Chris, he is out of town this weekend at a pastor's retreat with uh, my mom. Uh, but don't worry, they're going to be back next weekend. It would be kind of awkward to have a special 20th anniversary celebration service if he was not here. Uh, so we are planning on that. And I just want to echo what Christy said and encourage you all to be a part of that. Uh, tonight, uh, we are staying in the Old Testament book of Daniel. You can go, or staying in the Old Testament, and we're going to the book of Daniel. You can go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 6 and hold your place there for just a moment. Daniel 6 and hold your place there for just a moment. So far in this series, we've looked at Jesus and his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And as my dad said a couple of weeks ago, that story of their conversation in and of itself is not the most familiar story from the Gospels, but it does contain what are arguably the most familiar words in all of the Bible in John 3.16. Last weekend, Matt Pineda, our high school pastor, talked about David and Goliath. And this is the quintessential Sunday school story. It's a story uh, that people are so familiar with, uh, whether they've been a part of church or not, uh, they know the details of this story. And tonight, we are looking at the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. And the book of Daniel is an incredible one. Uh, it has, I think, two of the most familiar stories in all of the Bible in it. Uh, the one we're going to talk about in just a few moments. The other one is in Daniel chapter 3, where Daniel's three friends, uh, they have to decide what they're going to do when the king builds a giant golden statue of himself, whether they're going to bow down to it or not. Uh, when they don't do that, they get themselves thrown into a fiery furnace. Uh, so that's just a couple of the great stories from Daniel. And the main theme of this book, the main theme of Daniel is God's sovereignty. And that just means that God is in control. And this is a significant thing for us to remember because the book was written at a time when everything seemed to be falling apart for the people of God. Now I'll actually talk more about that in just a moment. But it's a book that is full of miracles and dreams and prophecies, and our story today is no different. And the miraculous nature of these events is one of the reasons why the stories that we read about in Daniel are so familiar to people, especially if you grew up in the church. But what I want us to do as we spend time together on this story today is focus not so much on the supernatural aspects of what we see in Daniel's story. What I want us to do is look at Daniel and see in him a practical example of how to live for God and how to honor God in an unbelieving and an unchristian world. Uh, chapter 6 is a great place for us to do this because it's so familiar, but also because it's a great uh, picture. It's a great snapshot of Daniel's time in exile as a whole. Uh, in, in this chapter, we see pretty much everything that he faced from great success to persecution. We see his uh, individual resolve, and we also see the saving work of God. 
And because I have a lot that I want to talk about today, I want us to go ahead and read our text. So uh, I'm going to read Daniel 6, verses 1 through 10. This is not the whole story, but it's going to give us everything we need to do uh, in order to get started. As we do each week, I would ask you, if you're able, to please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Like I said, I'm going to read the first 10 verses. You can follow along as I read aloud. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and they said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Thank you. You may be seated. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, earlier I said that the theme, the main overall theme you see in the book of Daniel is God's sovereignty. And I said this is important because everything was going wrong for God's people during Daniel's life. But we realize as we study this book, God is still and has always been in control. The book of Daniel is actually something that we call exilic literature, which just means that it was written while the people of God were living in exile. And really, this is what makes the book of Daniel so practical and so relevant For all of us today, regardless of where we are. You see, the people of God, they're not living in Jerusalem. They're not living in Israel. They've been overthrown. They've been forced out of their homeland into Babylon. When Daniel was a boy, probably around 15 years old, the king of Babylon, a man named Nebuchadnezzar, conquered the city and deported thousands of young men. Daniel was one of these. And they took these these boys back to Babylon in order to make them essentially just Babylonian. And they did everything that they could to remove their culture, their upbringing, their uh, identity, their way of life. And so what you have here is a boy taken from his family, taken from a city, from a society that believes in the one true God, the God of the Bible, a society that believes in the laws of the Bible, everything about uh, their culture is built around this belief. And up until this point in his life, this is all he has ever known. And he finds himself surrounded by people who don't believe in his one God. They have multiple gods. And they don't believe or follow his laws. You know, they have their own rules. And because of 
his specific situation, this different culture, it's all designed to minimize and, and diminish and replace Daniel's way of life. And yet what we see when we look at Daniel is a man who in the face of all of this, he not only glorified and served God, but he rose through the ranks of this pagan political system. He maintained his integrity, and because of his faith, he was able to display great power so that everyone around him saw the reality and the strength and the authority of God. And so when we think about this, or at least when I think about this, I have to ask myself a very simple question. How? How was he able to do that? How was he able to live this way? How was he able to, to live uh, this, this life of integrity and at the same time still have so much success in Babylon, in exile? What we're going to do for the rest of our time together today is look at what I believe are the answers to those questions. And I really think it's important for all of us to pay attention to this, regardless of where we are in life. You know, no matter what age we are, what level of influence we think we have in our world, because these answers, they apply to every single one of us. And if you like to take notes, you can write this down next to a number one, because the first reason that Daniel was able to do this was because Daniel knew who he was. Daniel knew who he was. Now, what this means for you and me today can be summed up with one word, identity, identity. Daniel knew who he was. We need to know who we are, what our identity is. And this was critical for him, and it should be critical for us as well. Daniel knew where his identity came from, and if we want to be able to follow his example and live for Christ in an unchristian world, then you and I, we need to know where our identity comes from as well. One of the first things that the Babylonians did to the children from Israel that they deported to try and erase their cultural heritage and erase their identity was to give them new names. And they weren't just given any names, or they weren't just given names that were easier for the people of Babylon to pronounce or anything like that. They were given specific names. Daniel, for example, was given the name Belteshazzar, which means Bel protect the king. And Bel was a Babylonian god. It was a reference to the god, or excuse me, one of the gods of Babylon and a reference to his power. And so you have to understand the idea behind this. This means that every time someone spoke to Daniel, every time someone called Daniel that name, he was supposed to be reminded of the power of Babylon over Israel and the power of Babylon's gods over the god of Israel. But Daniel never forgot his real name. And the name Daniel means God is my judge. God is my judge. That was Daniel's true name. And no matter what happened to him, no matter what he was called, what he learned, what situations he found himself in, he never wavered from the power and the meaning and the importance behind his true name, his true identity. Even being deported, even in exile, even experiencing everything he experienced, simply by remembering what his name was and what his name meant, he knew that God was in control. This is significant for us because if we're going to live as Christians in an unchristian world, then no matter what goes on around us, we need to know what our true identity is, what our true name is. And this is a name that should not be based on our own abilities or accomplishments, but it should be based on the work 
of Jesus Christ. And this is important because if we don't have this, if we don't have this foundational thing in our lives, what we will have is, is we're going to find ourselves going from uh, job to job, you know, hobby to hobby, uh, relationship to relationship. And we're always going to be in search of uh, meaning and identity. And as we shift from thing to thing, what we value most is going to shift with us. And it's just going to move up and down. And it's going to be like uh, the sand on a seashore. And eventually it's going to all fall apart. I know it comes at the end of our uh, main text, but where we see the reality of Daniel's identity on display in our story is in Daniel 6 verse 10. It says, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. And while I don't want to diminish anything, anything at all that Daniel is doing in this moment, what I think is the most important part of this verse are the last five words, as he had done before. And the reason I say that is because Daniel wasn't just doing what he thought he needed to do, given the reality of this situation. You know, Daniel wasn't just, he wasn't just doing this in order to try and raise awareness to an unjust law, you know, to stand up for something like that. Daniel was doing what he had always done. No matter who was on the throne, no matter what empire was in charge, no matter the laws that were in place at the time. One of the things that happens, especially because we read the book of Daniel a lot and learn about Daniel as children if we grow up in church, is that we, we, we read this book and we tend to focus on or only think about these big moments of faith. And I completely understand that because that's what's highlighted in the book. You know, in Daniel 1, for example, there's a big moment where Daniel and his friends, they refuse to eat the king's special food. They're not going to do that. In Daniel chapter 3, Daniel, we don't know where Daniel is. He's somewhere else uh, while this is going on. But in Daniel chapter 3, there's a big moment where his friends, they refuse to bow down to the statue of the king. But the truth is, when you study the book of Daniel, when you, when you think about this, and when you think about what life was like for him, what you realize is that what we see in these big moments, they're just the highlights. Because they're not moments of Daniel and his friends doing something extraordinary as much as they are just moments where Daniel and his friends did what they had always done. And in Daniel chapter 6, this is just Daniel being who he has always been. And if we want to learn from Daniel and live like Daniel, we have to do more than just try and be ready for those big moments in life. What we need to do is live lives full of small, consistent moments with God. Moments of prayer, moments of, of thankfulness, moments spent in God's word day after day after day. And when we live lives filled with those moments, two things happen. One, we're preparing ourselves for the big moments. Whatever they are, whatever they look like in your life, we're preparing ourselves for those big moments. And the second thing that happens is we're making sure that those big moments, they're not too big for us. They're not so big that they'll overwhelm us. And one of the things that I've heard my dad say a number of times when talking about Daniel is that he doesn't believe that Daniel had to think about what he was going to do when he learned about this decree in Daniel chapter 6. 
You know, when he learned that it was going to be against the law to pray to anyone other than the king, uh, you know, I don't think that Daniel spent a lot of time worrying about what he should do, stressing about whether or not he was going to keep praying or if he should change up his routine in any way. This is because Daniel knew who he was. His identity was so secure. And because of that, this moment, it wasn't, it wasn't too big for him. And this is the first thing. Daniel knew who he was, and we need to know who we are. We need to have our identity rooted in Jesus. The second thing that we see in this story, the second thing we learn from Daniel is that Daniel knew who he served. This is one of the reasons why Daniel was able to have so much success in Babylon. Daniel knew who he served. These points that I have for you, they they hopefully uh, build off of one another, you see. Because Daniel never forgot his true name, he never forgot his identity, That no matter who was in charge, God and God alone was king. This means that he never forgot that ultimately he was always working for God. And the way that this is summed up for me and you today is just with the word humility. The word for us, first of all, is identity. The second word for us is humility. And we should be like Daniel when it comes to this. You know, it was never about Daniel and what he did or what position he was in. It was always about God. Now, this is a point that I actually feel like we really need to spend a little bit of time on because when we talk about serving and and working and, and living as believers in an unbelieving world, this is where we have to realize that there is a balance that has to come in. And, you know, it's not that work-life balance that people kind of talk about. It's the tension that exists when we live in this world. And we ask the questions, you know, what level of involvement, what level of involvement should we have in our culture? How much should we participate in the world around us? Where do we draw the lines between what we will do and what we won't do? If you've never asked those questions, they're definitely questions that you should ask. And the reason that we need to wrestle with this a little bit is because there are two extremes when it comes to how to handle this situation. One extreme is to just separate from the culture completely, run from it, avoid it at all costs. And the other extreme is to conform to the culture. We just give in, we just surrender, and we change or abandon our beliefs in doing so altogether. But what we see when we look at the life of Daniel is that he did neither of these. You know, Daniel is often seen as this great example of someone who who stood up to the culture around him. You know, he refused to bow down to the society around him. And that certainly was the case when it needed to happen. There were obviously lines that Daniel was not willing to cross. But he was also a man who was greatly involved in this society. He was greatly involved in this pagan culture that he lived in. And again, you know, we have to be honest and say, well, how? How does he justify his behavior? How does he justify living this way? And, you know, we might be tempted to say, well, maybe Daniel was just special. You know, maybe Daniel was just unique. He had a unique calling placed on his life by God. And while I certainly wouldn't argue with that too much because Daniel's life is an exceptional one, I would also point out to you the fact that Daniel, as unique as he was, was really just doing what God wanted all of his people to do. And we see this when we actually look back at another Old Testament book called Jeremiah. 
And there's a great passage in Jeremiah 29 where the prophet, he's actually preparing the people of Israel for exile. He's saying, this is what's going to happen to you. This is how long you're going to be in exile. This is what it's going to be like. And he tells them what to do. He tells them how to live. And it's interesting because he doesn't say, you know what, just avoid it. He doesn't say just avoid Babylon at all costs. But he doesn't also say, you know, just give in, just conform. They've won. Just do whatever. Jeremiah 29 verses 4 through 7 says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. See, God still reminds us that he is in charge. He says, Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. And this is the crazy part for a lot of us to think about. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is one of those moments where we can read this and we can understand it, but I don't think that we can really experience it on an emotional level the way the people of Israel did. For them to hear God, through the prophet Jeremiah, telling them to live this way in a foreign pagan land. Because that's what he's telling them to do. He's telling them to get involved. Don't run away and don't give in, but be engaged. Pray for it. Pray for this city, not against it. There's a lot of things that this reminds me of. The first thing that jumped out to me when I was putting this together was in Mark 2, where Jesus is having dinner with tax collectors and sinners. And the religious elite, they were complaining about Jesus' behavior because that's all they ever do. And uh, this is what Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus is in this culture and he's not avoiding it, but he's not compromising either. He's engaged. He's engaged with the people around him. The words in Jeremiah also remind me of Matthew 5, where Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he tells uh, us to be salt and light. And when he says that we need to be light, he says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it in its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. I believe one of the reasons, honestly, I believe the reason that Daniel was so good at his job, and I do believe that. I believe that Daniel was a really good wise man and advisor to the different kings that he served under. But I believe the reason he was so good at that was because he was humble enough to remember that everything he did was ultimately done For the glory of God. That his life was a light shining to the people around him. In chapter 6, Darius, the king, he comes up with this new plan to delegate leadership. And in this plan, Daniel's going to be one of three men in charge of the entire kingdom. But at some point during this reshuffle, Daniel distinguishes himself somehow. So the king decides to go a step further and actually put him in charge of everyone. And this is where the leaders get upset 
Because the truth is, you know, when you think about it, a move up for Daniel is kind of like a move down for them. And so what you see for the rest of the story of Daniel is just plain old-fashioned jealousy. In verse 4, it says, At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. They were fine with Daniel, more or less, until he was put in charge of them. So, I mean, you got to think, Daniel's in government. What happens when you have a political opponent? You dig up dirt on him. You look for all the skeletons in his closet. Because they just assumed that Daniel was like everybody else, that he had things he was hiding, things he was covering up, things that he didn't want people to know about. But what happens when they look at his life is they realize he was different. They realize, honestly that he wasn't like them. And I think that was kind of a scary moment for them. He wasn't like them. This is because over the last possibly 70 years of his life, because Daniel, by the time we get to chapter 6, is in his 80s, just in case you didn't know that. He always knew who he was working for. And this meant that even as he lived and advanced in the heart of this pagan leadership system, he was still different. He was weird. Daniel was weird. He wasn't like the other people there, no matter what his position was. And I don't believe that Daniel did this because all of the other kings had just told him to be good, to be on his best behavior. And I don't believe that Daniel did this because he secretly loved being in exile. I think that he lived this way because he knew that he was ultimately serving God. His humility gave him the wisdom to know that everything he did was done for God's glory. This is like when we read uh, the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians when he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Even something as mundane and simple as that. Daniel did his best because he knew that everything he did was ultimately done for the glory of God. And this is where humility really needs to come into play in your life and my life. If we're going to look to Daniel for some kind of practical guidance, You may not think the same way that I do when it comes to this, but I believe that Christians ought to be the best employees. I believe that Christians ought to be the hardest workers, the most reliable, the most honest, no matter where we find ourselves, what level of job we have. And, you know, I I don't know. You might think, well, that's easy for you to say. You don't know what it's like at my job. You don't know what it's like at my Work. I'm not going to necessarily argue with you about that, but I would say that's why we're looking at Daniel's life. And that's where the value of Daniel's life comes in. When we have the humility to put others before ourselves and the humility to remember that everything we do is done for God, it's going to make a difference, not just in our own lives and our own attitude, but the lives of our coworkers and all the people that we interact with and who knows however many other people. We haven't gotten to this part of Daniel chapter 6 yet, but uh, what you see when you continue on in the story is that as much as the satraps and the other administrators and all those other people, as much as they hated Daniel, the king, Darius, he loved him. He cared about him. He cared for Daniel because Daniel was different. When you get to the part where Darius basically learns that he'd been tricked, And he realizes what this means for Daniel. We read these words. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. I don't think that he did that for everyone that broke 
his rules. You may disagree with me. I think that was something unique to Daniel. He says this once he realizes there's nothing that he can do. He says to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel was unique among all the leaders of Babylon. And this is what caused problems in his life. And this is what allowed him to make an impact. And this is what you and I need to remember when it comes to living like Daniel. Finally, number three, if you want to write this down, one of the reasons Daniel was able to have success in Babylon is because Daniel knew where his hope came from. Daniel knew where his hope came from. And for us, it's just summed up in the word hope. We need to be people of hope. Would you describe yourselves as hopeful people? When we look back at our text, we see that Daniel knew exactly what was going on, exactly what was in store for him, but at the same time, we see that he didn't do anything different. His hope came from God, and if you and I are going to be able to live for Christ in an unchristian world, we need to make sure that our hope from, comes from God as well. There are so many things to love about Daniel, but the thing that I love about him the most, honestly, is his consistency. That's not a very fancy thing to admire in a person, but... It's an incredibly difficult thing for a person to be. Daniel was the same man when he was going to be one of three people in charge of the kingdom. Then he was the same man when he was going to be the only person in charge of the kingdom. And he's the same man when he gets thrown into the lion's den. This is because Daniel knew who he was. He knew who he served and he knew where his hope came from. In his book, Thriving in Babylon, author Larry Osborne says, Daniel had hope in the biblical sense of the word. He had a deep-seated confidence in God's character and sovereignty. He staked his life on it. He goes on to say that this is a deep-seated optimism and confidence that comes from knowing that God can be trusted even when we have no idea what he is up to. This is how it turned out for Daniel. After the king yells out to him, Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. But here's where the story you thought you knew takes a turn for some of us. Because whether we have been taught this intentionally or not, what happens so much of the time is that we read this story and we see in Daniel a man who had his identity rooted in God, his purpose rooted in God, his hope rooted in God. And so when his life was on the line, God saved him. And we read this and we think, this is what God will do for those who live like Daniel. And what we so often mean is that this is what God will do for me. As long as I live like Daniel, as long as I'm good enough, as long as I follow the rules, as long as I don't give in to the world around me, this is what God will do for me. 
Well, it should not be a shock to you today for me to say that's a problematic way of understanding this story. We know so much of the time that's not what we see in life. But the main reason I would say this is the wrong way of understanding this story is because that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not if we are good enough, God will protect us and save us. The message of the gospel is we are not good enough. Because of that, God came and saved us. And the reason you and I can have hope, great hope, even optimism in our lives, is because in the gospels, what we see is a man who was better than Daniel, more honest, more faithful, more holy. We see a man who was plotted against. We see a man who was sentenced to death and thrown into a cave with a stone rolled over it. What we see in the Gospels is a man who was good enough to be saved, but wasn't. You see this miracle, Daniel being saved from death, what it does is it points us, it points us to the greatest miracle, where we have been saved not just from physical death, but spiritual death. And unlike Daniel, when Jesus was put in the tomb, he was dead. And unlike Daniel, when Jesus came out of the tomb, he was still covered in the marks of death. And we look at the story of Daniel and we recognize the greatness of what God can do. And we tell ourselves, I want God to do that for me in my life. And what God says is, I've already done something so much better. And because I did not save my son the way that I saved Daniel, you can have true hope, real hope, eternal hope. Because Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life and died a perfect death so that you and me can have salvation. Not because we are good enough, but because he is good enough. Amen. And this hope in Jesus, this knowledge of what God has done, it, it's the final answer to these questions of how to live for Christ in an unchristian world. We can do this because our hope is not based on anything in this world. It's not based on whether or not we can be good enough. It's based on Jesus. And because of his grace, we have the freedom to do whatever we need to do to live in that balance, to live in that tension, to be honest but yet shrewd, you know, to be, to be hardworking and, and to do our best but still humble with all that we accomplish, to, to be obedient and to do all that we can, to live holy lives but yet be still people just filled with mercy and grace. Everything to live in the tension of this world. Well, there's one last thing I want to say before we close. The band can come out and get ready. Because I don't feel like I can talk about the story of Daniel in the lion's den without talking about this. When Daniel came out of the den, he told King Darius, he said, my God sent his angel to protect me. And this is one of those passages where there's a lot of debate because some people say, well, that was God sending an angel but because Daniel doesn't just say he sent an angel, he said he sent his angel, there's a lot of people who also think that what this was was a pre-incarnate Jesus coming into the den of lions and being there with Daniel. But listen to me. As impressive as that discussion might be, that's not actually the thing that I want to leave you with today as we talk about this. Because the truth that I want you to see here, and this is a truth that we see all over Scripture, 
You know, I just talked about how when we look at the story of Daniel in the lion's den, if we think, well, if we live a good enough life, God will protect us. And that's not always how it goes. But a truth that we do see all over Scripture is highlighted here. And it's the fact that God may not always save us from our troubles. And where that applies to Daniel's, you know, he still got thrown into the lion's den. But God will always, always be with us in our troubles. We see this over and over again. Hebrews 13 verse 5 tells us, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your constant presence in our lives. Thank you for the example of Daniel and all that he can inspire us to be and how he can inspire us to live. But thank you so much more for the gospel truth of Jesus. For the life that you did not save so that we can have hope and joy and optimism Help us, Lord, as we do all that we can to live for you in a world that does not care for you at all. Give us the wisdom that we need, the identity that we need, the humility that we need, and the hope that we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.